Acts 8, um, verse 9. Now a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samara, saying that he was someone great. And they listened engagedly to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised both men and women. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power so that anyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. And an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the, of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? He replied, well, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. And Philip began to speak, and starting with his scripture, he proclaimed, he proclaimed to him, the good news about Jesus, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water, what is to prevent me from being baptised? Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the the disciples of the Lord, As he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Thanks, Graham and Angel. And like I said, uh, that was some excerpts from Acts 8 and 9. So I encourage you to go home this week and have a read of the, the whole of those two chapters. I think 
sometimes we have an idea that certain people just aren't interested in God or that they're too hard-hearted perhaps. Uh, sometimes we think that some people just would never come to salvation. This isn't true though, is it? And these three stories that we just heard parts of from Acts 8 and 9, I think tell some stories of some very unlikely and unexpected conversions. We've got the conversion of the, the Sumerians, the Ethiopian eunuch, and of course, Saul. And so I want to encourage us today, for those people in your life who are yet to come to faith, those people who seem to be absolutely impossible cases, I want to encourage you with these stories from Acts 8 and 9, that unlikely people do indeed come to saving faith in Jesus Christ in some very unlikely circumstances. There are three things I want you to notice about these stories. Firstly, it's Jesus who does the converting. Secondly, humility and repentance is needed. And thirdly, when this happens, we see enemies become brothers and despised people become loved people. We see outsiders become insiders. So let's have a look at these three stories and those, those three aspects and let's just encourage ourselves uh, with that today. So firstly, ultimately, it really is Jesus who does the converting. And I know we know that, but I think we need to remind ourselves of that. As, as followers, we are messengers of the good news. We are mouthpieces, we are vessels that, that carry and help to distribute the Holy Spirit. But it's Jesus who's directing the show, isn't it? And I won't read these, these verses today, but you, you can see, if you were to have a look at the story of the Ethiopian in chapter 8 and verses 26, 29, 39, you, you'll see the Ethiopian eunuch coming to faith. And what you'll notice about this, uh, this conversion is that it's all spirit-led. It's all Jesus-led. Philip's told by an angel sent by the Lord to, to go down a desert road in the middle of the day. Now, this, this desert road in the middle of the day at noon uh, would typically be deserted. And so I think the point being made in this encounter that he has with the Ethiopian eunuch is that it's a divine appointment. It's been arranged by Jesus. Jesus has set it up. It's not chance. It's not... Um, you know, good thinking on behalf of, of Philip. It's been arranged by Jesus. The Spirit then tells Philip to head over and have a chat with the Ethiopian. Again, he's prompted by the Spirit to do something. Philip is a mouthpiece for Jesus, explaining the, the scriptures, but it is clear, isn't it, that Jesus is directing the show. And I don't know about you, but that just gives me great security and comfort when it comes to mission and evangelism, that I can trust that the Holy Spirit is going to prompt me to go places, prompt me to talk to people, prompt me to say things, and that I don't have to worry and stress about guiding or leading or directing that because Jesus does. Jesus is guiding and directing the show. 
If you were to read down in chapter 9, you know, the story of, of Saul and Ananias, again, you, you see Jesus leading, prompting, directing. They're, they're both just responding to things that Jesus is doing. Again, there are human participants here, but Jesus is the director. You're probably familiar with the story and you'll know that Saul is able to do little more than, than obey, isn't he? Ananias follows Jesus' instructions to go and, and lay hands on Saul so that he might receive the, the spirit. Again, Ananias is a mouthpiece for Jesus. He's a vessel in the service of Jesus. And so I think for us, this really does reinforce that, that salvation, it's a gift. It's not earned. It's not claimed. It's not worked for. There must be a supernatural element to conversion. What a relief to know it doesn't depend on you. <laughs> this is God's project. We, are, we participate in the process, and, 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 but he is there present to reveal truth and to convict people of their need for new life through him. I want to read to you a, a real-life, present-day example of how God shapes events and desires in someone's life, someone who isn't even looking for salvation. Perhaps you've got people in your life today, they're not even looking for salvation they're not even maybe needing it in the sense of maybe feeling broken and feeling like something's missing in their life. This is a story from a book called Unlikely Converts by Randy Newman. And what I love about this story is that it's, it's such an unlikely conversion, but at the same time, this person is just an everyday, ordinary person who comes to faith in Jesus. And I think you'll see how... Jesus was clearly directing the show here. Have a listen. Her name is Erica. Erica grew up in a home with no religion other than the antagonism that her atheist father occasionally expressed towards his own father, who had served as a pastor for more than 50 years. Possibly he's been praying for this Erica, I suspect. Anyway. When she went off to college, she never thought about religion or faith or God. She identified as an atheist who thought, just what you see here on earth, that's all there is. She filled her freshman year of college with the typical parties, boys and alcohol without harming her grades. She came into college with a strong social resume. She said, I was my high school's golden girl, perfect GPA, star athlete, homecoming crown uh, queen, the whole bit. She says, in college I had friends. I had things to fill my time with. I played lots of sports, lots of clubs. There was never that, that clear, vacant void. Erica felt no need for anything beyond her very full life. When she came home after her first year, her parents announced plans to take a family vacation in Paris for summer. That's a long summer to be with your family, she said, so I decided to bring my Bible. Now, the interviewer at this point interrupts her and says, hang on a minute, your, your Bible? <laughs> like, you, you had a Bible? And she said, yeah, I, I had a Bible. I was given a Bible as a gift from a good friend of mine. And the interviewer says to her, well, how long ago? She shrugged her shoulders as if to, 
say that she didn't know and to also confirm that her action was a bit weird. In fact, she used the word weird several times when she told me about her decision to bring the Bible. It came out of the blue. She even commented that it was one of those really fat Bibles that took up a lot of room in her suitcase, a rather small suitcase her father insisted uh, she used because of the airline restrictions. I know, she said, it's weird, right? And she read that fat Bible every day. We're just out of the blue because she decides to bring a Bible and start reading it. When she returned to college, she sought out a meeting of a Christian fellowship. She knew someone on her dorm floor who attended such a group, so she asked to join her. The interviewer says, well, did she invite you? No, she told me. No, she said emphatically. The interviewer said to her, um, oh, I had said to her, can I come? So it was just plain weird, she said. She says, the speaker that night presented a, a standard apologetics message about the reason why people should believe the Bible. But what stood out to Erica was an argument about when people stub their toe in a locker room, they call out Jesus' name as a curse word. And she thought, you know, why would you just say someone, some person, random person's name that had no influence in the world unless he really was more than just a random person? It was at this point that Erica thought, oh no, I need to think about this. She ended up meeting weekly with a woman from the apologetics organisation and drilled her with questions. Erica didn't really understand why she kept meeting with this lady. She says, I really just wanted to continue living life the way I had cut it out to be. Religion or God just wasn't part of my plan. You might think that as an atheist, uh, once taking the first step of acknowledging the existence of God, uh, it, it, she would then move gradually towards Christianity. But for Erica, she says, once I wrapped my head around the idea that there could even be a God, uh, things moved a lot faster in my mind and my heart. And, and she subsequently very quickly came to faith. She's just such an ordinary person, isn't she? Who had no particular need or desire for God. She wasn't searching for God. She was happy with her life. She was an atheist. She'd grown up in an atheist family. And then one day out of the blue, she decides to take her Bible on holidays that someone had randomly given her years ago. She reads it and um, becomes a believer. Uh, God finds her. I mean, she wasn't looking for God, but God found her. And it was, it was God who did the converting. And I think that story really should encourage us when it comes to those people in our life who are so uninterested in God that they, they're not even looking or even asking questions for us to even answer their questions. That God's, God's at work. God's directing the show. Our second thing that we see in these three stories is that we see the need for humility and childlikeness in repentance and coming to faith. And if you were to have a read of chapter 8, verse 18 to 24, you'd see the story of, of Simon, the sorcerer. Now, he's quite famous in Samaria. He's actually a bit of a celebrity. Everyone thinks he's pretty special and they'd eagerly come to watch him do his magic. Now, whether this fellow Simon was kind of like a, an illusionist in the sense of what we would probably 
think of uh, when we think of magicians today, or whether he was a sorcerer performing supernatural feats uh, through uh, some spiritual entity. It's a little bit unclear, but the point of the story here, I think, is that he recognised real spiritual power, real power when he saw it. So when he saw the Samaritans being baptised in the Holy Spirit, after Peter and John laid hands on them and prayed for them to receive the Spirit, he thinks, aha, that's, that's a pretty awesome feat. I want that. And, and so he arrogantly offers money to buy this power. And if you read that passage there, you'll see that uh, Peter pretty quickly sets him straight. And he says, repent, Simon, you are being wicked there is no room in the kingdom of God for hotshots, for manipulators, for people who think they can buy or earn their way into God's favour and God's kingdom. And I think if we think about people in the world who are successful, if you think about uh, famous celebrities, often people like this think that they can simply have or buy everything or anything that they want. You know, you can't buy or earn or manipulate God's salvation or favour or his gifts. Our heart needs to be in a place of repentance, doesn't it? We need to be in a place of humility, knowing our lack, um, you know, knowing that we need him. We need to know that we don't have the ability to save ourselves from our own selfishness, our own trouble, our own sin. And of course, it's God who gives salvation. It's God who gives his power as a gift to those whose heart is turned in faith towards him, in childlike trust and need. We need to come to him. We need to come to him in childlike faith and trust. We need to we need to listen to him and know that we don't have the ability to save ourselves. We need to say, Jesus, you're the king. You're at the center of my life, Jesus, not me. I want to follow you and your ways. We see in the story of the eunuch, someone who does, by contrast to Simon, have this open and this humble heart. He's hungry to know God and he's hungry to know God's ways. Are you, are you hungry to know God? Are you hungry to know his ways? I mean, really hungry. Hungry enough to lay aside all those things that our world says are important or needed those things that we think we need and want, are you hungry enough to lay them down? It's hard to lay them down. You, you've got to be really hungry. You've got to be really humble. This Ethiopian eunuch, he's been to Jerusalem to worship. Even though as a eunuch, he's actually excluded from being able to participate fully in the Jewish faith. But despite this, he, he still wants to, to honour God. 
And so he's reading the scriptures. He's in his chariot and he's reading the scriptures and he's puzzling about what they're saying. And when Philip asks him if he understands what he's reading, he responds with just such a humble and teachable attitude. He just says, well, how can I understand unless someone else teaches me? Do you have a humble and teachable attitude? Humble and teachable heart? I think that this, this man coming to faith is quite a, a significant, surprising thing because this, this Ethiopian is as an official in charge of the Queen's treasury. He's a man of great position and power. You think about it. He's an official and he's in charge of the royal treasury. I mean, that's an incredibly prestigious position, isn't it? He has a lot of power and influence and prestige in his own home country. And yet here he is, humble and hungry for God. He quickly responds to the good news about Jesus. I mean, he doesn't think two, two seconds about it, does he? He eagerly repents and comes to Jesus and asks to be water baptised as a sign of his repentance and faith. And I think there's something quite uh, innocent and childlike about the eagerness with which he comes and asks for this baptism. I think it's beautiful. I think it's, it's incredibly special. It's such an amazing and unlikely story for someone so powerful to be so open and hungry and humble, uh, to be made right with God. And then in our third story there, we've got Saul. And Saul starts out as incredibly zealous and self-righteous. But one encounter with the risen Lord and he is blind, he is repentant and he is dependent on his companions to lead him by the hand and, and he becomes like a small child stumbling about, having to be led by, by others into Damascus. And so where the, the Ethiopian man is naturally humble and childlike, Saul needs a, a prod doesn't he? He needs a reminder of who he is and who Jesus is. And I, I think if I had a choice, I'd like to be like the Ethiopian, kind of naturally humble and repentant and hungry. I, I'm not sure that I, I really want to be like Saul, needing a dramatic prod to make that happen. But God knows what we need, doesn't he? Saul fasts for three days and I, I think this is a sign of his repentance and he has to wait for Jesus to tell him what's going to happen next. So there he is, he's, he's forced to be uh, dependent, isn't he, on Jesus for the next step. This man who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a powerful and influential man who was coordinating the arrest campaign of Jesus' followers, is now blind, hungry, thirsty and sitting in someone's home waiting. Saul's conversion is, is quite a humbling experience for him. And so for us, for anybody, without childlike humility and true repentance for sin, there's just no salvation. It's a key part of the process. I think for a learned academic scholar like Saul, an elite in his field, to be humbled and repentant is quite an incredible thing. You know, it doesn't matter how influential or intelligent or well-read or well-educated someone is. 
you need to give up your ideas about how life works and you need to do things God's way. Let me tell you another example from the same book, Unlikely Converts. And this man's name is Alan. And it says, Alan was raised in a Christian home and he grew increasingly rebellious because of the hypocrisy he saw in his Christian school. He read the Quran, the Book of Mormon, and a lot of Eastern stuff. He read the rise of new atheists, like uh, people such as Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Sam Harris. And, and these men provided the intellectual firepower he needed to reject the Christian faith with a vengeance. He especially loved Hitchens and regularly read his column in the Vanity Fair magazine. But, I like this, reading Hitchens also turned him around. Like millions of Hitchens fans, Alan couldn't wait to get his hands on the new release, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And Alan says this, he says, I really liked Hitchens. I read everything he put out, watched everything, especially everything he put out on YouTube. He had this venom that really resonated with me. Not only are these uh, religious people intellectually wrong, they're morally wrong. But... Alan found Hitchens to be inconsistent. Alan just didn't buy Hitchens' insistence that atheists could have a basis for morality apart from God. He liked how atheism gave him the intellectual foundation for immorality, hence lots of drug use, sex, nihilistic music and so on. He says, Hitchens claimed that morality is innate to the human experience and we don't need to know where it comes from in order to abide by it. And that just didn't make sense to me. And so for Alan, that started an internal crisis, complete with panic attacks and an inability to sleep. He only found relief after a one-on-one -on -one Bible study of the Book of Romans. <laughs> As he moved into his dorm on the first day of college campus, he met Christians that he first thought were knuckle-dragging Baptists. For some odd reason, he accepted an invitation to study the Bible with one of them. Less than two months later, Alan became a Christian. What I like about that story is we see this, this Alan who is smart, he is well-read, he, he intellectually loves the idea of rejecting Christianity. He thinks Christians are hypocrites, but how quickly he comes undone. How quickly his arrogance turned to a desperate need with his internal crisis about morality and meaning and, and what a humbling experience for him to be having panic attacks and to only find relief in Bible studies from the book of Romans. You know, humility and childlikeness is, is needed when we come to salvation and, and if we kind of don't have it ourselves, God can arrange you to have it <laughs> if he needs to. There is no room for arrogant self-reliance in the kingdom of God. Our third and final uh, point here. In coming to salvation, the despised become loved. Outsiders become insiders. At the beginning of chapter 8, we see Philip and Peter and John and others going to preach in Samaritan villages. And they were received by these Samaritans. And they saw people come to faith and become part of the church. 
Now, to fully appreciate just how amazing that is, because it, it just you could easily gloss over that, oh, yeah, a village of people came to faith. But to fully appreciate just how amazing it is that, that the Samaritans became part of the church, you, you need to understand a little bit of the historical context here about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans kind of said that they were descendants of Abraham, but the Jews said, you know what, you guys, you're not racially pure. You're not true people of Yahweh because you've intermarried with foreigners a few hundred, hundred, hundred years ago. And so um, there, there was this enmity between Jews and Samaritans and they disagreed with where the true location of the temple should be. Jews thought it should be in Jerusalem. Samaritans thought it should be on Mount Gerizim. So there's a lot of hostility. We've got the right temple. No, we've got the right temple. No, we've got the right temple. Uh, there's a story in the first century, some Samaritans secretly broke into the Jewish temple and desecrated it with corpses, with dead bodies. As you can imagine, after that, uh, the Samaritans were permanently excluded from Jerusalem's temple. If Jews from Galilee were travelling through Samaria to go to a religious festival in Jerusalem, they'd sometimes be heckled by the Samaritans. Uh, sometimes violence would break out and the Roman military would have to come and intervene. And so you can see how uh, for Samaritans to uh, welcome the, uh, the believers into their village and to listen to them sharing about religious matters and for them to come to faith and for them to be uh, invited into the community of the church, you can see that this is an incredibly unlikely, incredible thing to have happened. But that's what God does. Despised people become loved members of the church. Outsiders become insiders. And I think this is a bit of a challenge for us as Christians. I think if we were to think of people groups, and, and whether that's political uh, groups, whether that's um, you know, people of, who, of, of, who would um, have strong beliefs around gender and identity and, and marriage, and often as Christians, we might say, well, will those people groups, those sorts of people who believe those things or do those things or champion those things, they're the enemy. We think they're the outsiders. Um, imagine those people coming to saving faith in Jesus, becoming part of the church. It's unlikely, but... God does unlikely stuff. What about in, in Acts chapter 9, the story of Saul, we see this enemy of the church become a brother. He's the persecutor of the church and, and he's, he comes to believers in, in Damascus and instead of arresting them like he'd planned to do, he's had this whole born-again encounter with Jesus and he instead goes to the local synagogue not to arrest them, but to preach Jesus. I mean, this truly is crazy, crazy stuff. An enemy becomes a brother. This despised man becomes a preacher of Jesus. And so we need to be encouraged. It, it, it's Jesus who does the converting. He will bring people to a place of humility and repentance. And that, that truly is necessary in relation to faith. 
And of course, the result is that we see outsiders become insiders. We see enemies become brothers. These salvation stories in Acts 8 and 9, they, they are encouraging. And so for us, those, those religions or those people groups we think would never come to salvation in Jesus, like the Samaritans, I want to say to us, they are open. Those people are open and responsive to the good news when it's preached with love and power. Those wealthy or influential people that maybe we know, people like the Ethiopian eunuch, people who seem to be too famous or powerful or wealthy to need Jesus, you know what? They are hungry and humble for Jesus. And those hard people, like Saul, that seem to be just so far from Jesus and so hostile to faith, they're not too hard and they're not too far for, for Jesus to reach. For people in your life who have strayed from Jesus or maybe who have never known Jesus, I, I want us to be praying this for those people. I want us to be praying that they would have a teachable, humble heart. I want us to be praying that they would have a repentant heart. Pray that they would become like children. And, and know that when you share your faith, when you share the facts about the good news, about Jesus, about Christianity, it, it's not just you and the other person in that, that conversation. There's a third person in that conversation. God. God is in that conversation. He's the third person. He's speaking as well. He's convicting. He's arranging circumstances and events to reveal the truth to reveal the power of Jesus and someone's need for repentance and trust in Jesus. You're not on your own in this. And then finally, I think for us as a church, we need to open our lives up and our ministry up to people who we might consider as outsiders, enemies of the faith, excluded people. I think, unfortunately, sometimes Christians leave the impression that certain people or groups are excluded from faith because of their choices, because of their lifestyle, because of their culture, because of their identity. And therefore, we, we don't reach out to such people in love and grace and acceptance of them as a person who's in need of the love and the life of Jesus. And so we must be a church who is ready and welcome, welcoming of all people. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, stir our hearts with hope and faith from these, these three stories in Acts chapter 8 and 9. Just pray that the story of um, the Samaritans, the story of um, Saul, the story of the Ethiopian, Lord, that you would use those stories to excite us, to encourage us and to build faith in our lives. Lord, when we... Um, share our faith or life with others, when we pray for others, would you remind us that you were the third person there in that conversation, that you were, the, that you were there uh, convicting, leading, guiding. And so, Lord, for those people in our life that we do uh, long to see come to salvation, we just uh, bring them before you now. Lord, we ask that you would convict them of their need for Jesus that they would have a, a truly repentant and humble heart. 
Lord, we pray that you would um, uh, create circumstances in their life, that you would create divine appointments in their life so that they encounter Jesus, so that they come face to face with the truth of the gospel. Lord, you are sovereign. And so we look to you and we open ourselves to be led by you when it comes to sharing our faith with others. So use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.